we strive to do our best, Lord, please help me as we try to finish this chapter. Uh, what a challenging chapter, Lord, not because of what's written in it, but because of the practices that have come to the local church, even today, and have led astray so many, Lord, and the edification that you so dearly want church members to have has been lost because of this drive for self-exaltation. But Lord, we want to complete this, and we want to learn from this, and Lord, we want to learn that your goal is edification. Your goal is to glorify your Son. Your goal is the good of each and every person, Lord. And so, Lord, as we study this, we pray that you would help us understand these truths in their context. Lord, we thank you for this day. We know that there are some that are recovering from surgeries. There's a few that have gone through some hard treatments this week. Lord, we pray that you just minister to them. Thank you for the reminder of healing. And Pastor Michael and his life and testimony and so many others who could stood up here today and give the same testimony that God has taken them through difficult times. Some healed, some not. But all in the perfect will of God. You make no mistakes. And so we thank you, Lord. But we pray for those who are struggling, Lord, who maybe don't understand. Give them those great verses, those reminders of truth. Help us to be praying for them, reminding them that God has not failed them. He is with them. Lord, we thank you for our missionaries around the world. And even as we saw in our scripture reading, it is encouraging us to see that the word of God is spoken in many, many languages. And that word of God, Paul tells us, cannot be chained. It cannot be imprisoned. And you do your work through the preaching of that. And so, Lord, we are so encouraged. And we ask that you would encourage us to be greater and greater involved in your work around the world, Lord. Now, Lord, we turn to this text. Lord, give us clarity as we study it together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me start this with saying, no, we are not starting an Arabic-speaking church. So whoever's already posted that out there, um, please take that down. <laughs> I, I just wanted to demonstrate. In fact, that came from a member said, well, wouldn't it be cool if you did something like that? And I said, that would be cool. <laughs> uh, and I just wanted you to see how that's, that's what God intended. And that's what God intended to the, to the church in 1 Corinthians, that there would be clear instruction from God's word and there would be clear interpretation of it. Not unknown to everybody. And so we put a little demonstration on with my dear friend George this morning. But in a way, way of introduction, I want to go back to this word edification. It's such a key word as we've been studying this. Over and over we find it in the text, verse 3 of chapter 14. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification. Right? There it is. Uh, verse 4, into verse 4. But the one who prophesies edifies the church. Verse 5, at the end of verse 5, so the church may receive edifying. Verse 12, we drop all the way down and we see, seek to abound in the edification of the church. Verse 19, in the middle of it, so that, so that I may instruct others also, edify them, give them understanding. And then in verse 26, as we'll see this morning, a really summation statement. Look at the end of verse 26. Let all things be done in edification. He is beating this drum over and over. And why? Because edification was not happening in this church. Everyone was doing what they thought was good. As we have been working our way through chapters 11 through 14, don't forget this is the context is the public setting of worship. He began to go after their church service. <laughs> it was poorly run and it was out of control. Um, and so this is what he is charging here. And when the church comes together, he wants the goal. Paul knows the he's inspired by the Spirit. The goal is edification of the church. Paul wrote to Timothy, but the goal of our instruction, another word for edification, is love from a pure heart, the good conscience and sincere faith. The, and, and we realize that edification must come with love, right? He started this whole chapter out after the great chapter on love in verse 13. Pursue love. Run after it in a dogmatic way, right? And then you would handle the gifts correctly. The word, evoca word evocation is a beautiful word. Um, Paul uses it so much. It's a compound word. Uh, um, oikos is the first half of it, and that means house. And then dome is the second part. Okos, 
uh, oikos dome is the full word. Dome means to build something. So we get this idea of building, of, of a house builder. Uh, it, it, in, in its noun form, would represent a carpenter. Uh, but here is the idea of continually building up. This is the way Paul uses this verb throughout the text. And so the design of the church was to bring people into full maturity in Christ, keep building them up. Paul just loves this topic. Look at uh, Ephesians chapter 3 or 2 with me. Just to your right just a bit. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 19 Another summation statement as he has been praying and teaching and amazing things in Ephesians and so much doctrine, he says in verse 19, So then, if that's all true, you are no longer strangers or aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints in our God's household. Now look at this, verse 20. Having been built up on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. Now we'll stop right there. This is where Paul says it all began, the teaching of the apostles and the prophets. They were the ones that came in, and they built nothing on anything other than Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. Everything comes off of that. He is the plumb line. He is the support. He is the foundation. He is everything to we teach that we teach, Paul says. Verse 21, in whom the whole building, here's our root word again, being, being fit together, growing into a holy temple in the Lord. He's speaking about all of us. In whom you also are being built up. There we go, another form of that word. Built up together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. This has always been his plan. And so God saves us to put us together, to edify, to help build us up. Well, someone might say, well, Scott, churches can get really engaged with edifying. And they can become, you know, so, so caught up in knowledge that they're not very good at reaching the loss. Well, I think if we look around here, that's, I hope, not true here. I think God continues to use this church. And so I got thinking about that as I was challenged with that question one time. And, I, and it made me run to the book of Acts. Look at the book of Acts. If there was an ever time when they were educating Quickly, let's look at the book of Acts and see what happened. And I think this happens today still in our churches that are faithful to the word. Go to Acts chapter 2 with me. There's many places in Acts we could draw this out, but I chose this passage as one of my favorite. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Many of you know this text. Now notice what it says in verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, the didache, the instruction of doctrine. That's what that means. They dedicated themselves to doctrine. Didactic, instructional teaching is what the Bible is saying. This is the early church, right? 3,000 have just been saved. No, but not only that, into fellowship, that's very important, the koinonia that we have now in Christ, the breaking of bread, so we know that's not dinner at that point because he's already mentioned fellowship, that's the remembrance of the Lord's death, right? That's communion, Lord's table together, and to prayer. Everyone, verse 43, felt a sense of awe when many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. The scriptures weren't complete. God was doing amazing things through them. We, we marvel at that. And all those who had believed, verse 44, were together and all had in common. And they began selling their properties, possessions, and were sharing them with them all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continually, but with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house. They're fellowshipping again there. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Now you wonder about evangelism. Look at verse 47. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now isn't that an astounding text? They're faithful to the apostles' doctrine and didactic teaching. They're fellowshipping. They're remembering the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord. They're meeting one another's needs. And guess what God's doing? Saving people. That's what we do, right? We hold to these truths, and, and certainly we share the gospel whenever God gives us an opportunity, because how can you keep that great message in? And God builds his church. And so edification is not just for the sense of, now I know more. I'm sure God, God taught that passage, I know more. No, 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 no. Edification spurs you on to share with others what you know, and God uses that. 
And when we look at the assembly, as God brings people together, God reaches unbelievers. They witness the joy of the promises that you have just rejoiced over when you hear it preached. They witness that. They say, these people are about, excited about something I don't have. They keep talking about the afterlife. They have hope that I don't have. You know how people have told us that when they got saved? I saw Christians who had hope that I didn't have, and I wanted what they wanted. That was the Spirit of God in them, drawing them, putting the, their eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they witness the joy we have in the promises of God, and they know that we are followers of Jesus Christ. And that's what he told his disciples. They will see you. When you love one another, they'll see you, and they'll know you are my disciples. This is effective evangelism. And when we have the gospel clear in our tongues, we preach it to ourselves, God will open opportunities because you are a hopeful person, an eternally hopeful person now because you've been saved from your sins. Listen to what Paul told the church in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 through 11. Just listen. For God has not destined us for wrath. As a preacher, you just can't get by that passage. <laughs> okay, let me stop there. I am not destined for hell any longer. Is that a good enough message to start out talking to somebody? What if you just said, "Come up, hey, you know what? I'm not going to hell anymore. People would go, what? <laughs> I think it's a great way to start, but that's what the Bible says. God has not destined us for his wrath anymore, but has attained salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. We now have salvation who died for us. So whether we're awake or asleep, and this is good for us that are still alive when we think about our brothers and sisters who have gone to the Lord before us, whether we wake or sleep, we live together with him, right? There's never, ever a separation from Christ if you're a believer. The moment you pass from this life, the split second you pass from this life, you remain in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's teaching here. But it gets even better. Listen to this. Therefore, if all that's true, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Build one another. This is, this is the goal of the church. Are you building somebody up? Who's in your life that needs to be built up? Man, I'm sitting here as Pastor Michael's talking. I'm going, I leaned over to Gina and go, I needed that today. And I don't have cancer that I know of, but I needed those words. That built me up. And this is why we conduct worship services the way we do. So all those who have tasted the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we now have, have been given, listen, a supreme role of edifying one another. And this is Paul's goal. And you say, well, Scott, what about those who are weak and well, maybe those who are struggling and maybe there's someone under discipline. There's, there's all kinds of people with different things. What do I do? Well, Paul addresses that as well. Romans 15, 1 through 4. Remember, this is his theme throughout his epistles to edify. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those who, who are without strength and not just, because, not just to please ourselves. Each should please his neighbor for his good to his edification, Romans 15, verse 2 says. And then he says this, for even Christ did not please himself. Man, when I read that this week, I thought, oh, Lord, what an example. Our Lord did not come down to this earth, leave heaven above, the right hand of the Father, with all authority right there. He does not leave that to come down here to please himself. I think I'll just take on flesh and suffer with those guys and then have them kill me. He did this to edify us. And what edification? Here's our edification. We now have eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's about as edifying as it gets, isn't it? See, he didn't seek to edify himself. And we find him as the greatest example of this. So the Apostle Paul never gets away from this theme. Throughout his ministry, he continues to talk about building up and edifying always. This is the goal of the church. But this was exact opposite of what Corinth was engaged in. They were engaged in self-exaltation, right? Over-edification. That, that was more important to him. And despite the example of Jesus Christ, because chapter 1 shows that example of Jesus Christ, and despite, in maybe to a lesser state, the apostles' example, they were not following that. They were into self-edification. So Paul demonstrates an incredible patience. I, one of the things I've learned is I watch his patience, and he keeps calling them brethren, and he shows kindness to this church, but his goal is to show that the procedure of edification has gone off the rails in this church. And now this last section begins to show us 
why and how and what has done. And he is calling this to come to a halt because it has disgraced their public worships. Now, Paul's goal is to expose that. And he's going to do it, I think, in five different ways as we look through this. So I broke it up in five points. Number one, the battle for edification over the desire for self-exaltation. Look at verse 26 with me. If you can remember what it said in Arabic, that's great, but I'm going to read it to you in English. Verse 26. What is the outcome then? Right there, it tells you, right? Now we're moving into some application states. Brethren, when you assemble, each has a psalm, each has a teaching, each has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation, period. Let all things be done for edification. Now, again, he starts out with his brethren. This is his affectionate plea to this whole church. This is the way he operates. This is why he was a great shepherd. But it also, as we've learned, sets up, maybe softens this next rebuke that's coming. And this is a strong rebuke. Notice he says, what is the outcome then? So this statement helps us realize that the Spirit of God often leads Paul to write, um, first, uh, uh, here's the problem, here's the doctrine, here's what we believe, and then he gives an application. We see him do that a lot. Ephesians is a book like that, right? We hear strong doctrine, and in chapter 4 we get into unity, and 5, family, and, and 6, armor, and all of that. The book of Romans takes on chapters all the way through uh, 5 and 6 and 7. And really, when you look at it, it goes all the way up to chapter 12 with doctrine. And then application comes and says, Therefore, offer your bodies as living sacrifices to God. And he begins to give great application. And so I think that's what he's doing here. He's really hammered us on the first 25 verses what is the true doctrine of edification, what is not the doctrine of edification. And now he's going to use their service as an example so they can apply all of this truth. Now, notice in verse 26 that he says, when you assemble, when you assemble. See, God always assembles his people. It's a mark of genuine children of God. And you can study this from the Old Testament all the way through the church, right? He loved to assemble men, families. He, he brought them together. He gave them feasts in the Old Testament. He constantly brought them together. He brought them centered around the tabernacle, which was the dwelling of God. Here in this church age, we center around the Lord Jesus Christ. God gave us a, a building. We use it to keep ourselves dry. But the head of this church the umbrella of everything we do is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's the mark. And he says over and over in verse 19, in the church, verse 23, the whole church. And here he uses the word, when you assemble. So when you put these first couple phrases together, Paul is saying, how is it possible? Now, this is what he's after. Here comes the rebuke. How is it possible that when you gather as believers, you come to the outcome of chaos and disunity? How do we get there, is what he's asking. If the body is one, made up of many parts, chapter 12, and, and you're supposed to be contributing your part, sharing in the edification of the church, how did we get to chaos and confusion in the public worship service and reject the desire to edify one another? And that's what he's doing. And he begins to now show five different problems that we're adding to this, right? He's going to show how they got to this chaotic, confused state in their worship service. Notice verse 1, each, uh, verse 26. Each one has a psalm. Now, this could mean a portion out of the psalms, like Pastor Michael read today, that possibly is true. They had, an old they had the Old Testament. Um, one would start it to read a psalm. Uh, maybe there were several people over here reading a psalm, and then a bunch of people over here said, no, I'm going to read my psalm, and then a bunch of people said, no, I'm going to read my psalm, and all of a sudden you got people reading psalms. No organization. However, when we study the word a little more, um, most theologians believe that the psalm word is for singing. And so what we think is happening in this text is that somebody decided to do a solo, but somebody else wanted to do a solo, and everybody else wanted to do a solo. And so you, now you have this Corinth Got Talent type of thing going on in the church, right? And doubtlessly, some of them aren't very good, but they're trying to outsing somebody else. Because why? I need to be front and center. They need to hear me. I have a gift from God. 
And there was no concern of order and design. Listen, singing is such an important part of the church. Don't you love our aspect of our singing in our church? From our choirs to our worship service. I mean, don't we enjoy that? I love preaching behind that, right? I mean, it is such a joy. Gina and I still, after seven and a half years, still needle each other every once in a while. Isn't this great? Because God has blessed us with such a beautiful worship ministry. And that's what God intended. He said, let the word of Christ richly dwell in you in Colossians 3, 16. With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing, edifying. That's what he's talking about. Then he says, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your heart. This is the badge of true spiritual maturity is that there is a joy that comes out of you. Right? I'm after some of you mumblers. Time to let it out. You can say sorry to the person in front of you afterwards, but they shouldn't care. Make a joyful noise. Right? This is what we do. It's an expression to our God that we sing out loud. And so this was perfect, and this was what God wanted, right? Music's been such a part of the plan. You study the Old Testament, and you, you'll, read a, you'll read a psalm, and it says, Asap, the choir director. There was horns, and there were stringed instruments, and there was organization to that, but that wasn't what was going on here. There was pride that led to this desire for self-exaltation, and it entered in, and there was chaos and so all that's going on is, is singing, and nobody knows what's going on. There's no choir director. Notice the next one, he says, a teaching. This is our Greek word, didike, here. It is the Greek word that denotes instruction, didactic instruction. I've already talked about this. It's the activity of teaching doctrine. And again, he's exposing why there is chaos here. So there's people standing up throughout the congregation, possibly in front, possibly to the sides, to the left and the right, and they're all trying to give their instruction at the same time. This is getting out of control, isn't it? And you can see the scene develop, and there's numbers of people over here that are singing songs, and over here there's numbers of people trying to give some kind of instruction, and they're, they're getting louder because people can't hear them, and chaos is growing. He moves to the next one. Look at this. Has a revelation. Apocalypsis is the word here. It means something uncovered, something disclosed, something revealed. So now you have people standing in conjunction with those who are singing, those who are instruction, giving instruction, and now there's people going, I have a word from God. Now, they might have had one, because remember, the scriptures aren't complete, and God was doing extraordinary things. He was giving revelation. He was giving uh, reminders through, of revelation of, of good things to come through the Old Testament that they did have, and he was giving revelation at this time because we did not have a complete of scriptures. But with all that said, instead of using that unique and temporal gift for edification, it now added to the chaos that was going on in the church. So now we have... We have singing and instruction and we have a word from God and, and the group's getting bigger, right? And more and more people are engaging in this and there is nothing but chaos. Now we come to the one that was probably one of the biggest problems, why he focuses on it, has a tongue. Now it seems that the context, when you look here in verse 26, that there were, would be some with the true gift of language, right? We've talked about this. And you'll notice in the text, and I, I, I want to make sure that you understand this particular verse, these two verses here. We said before, when it has a plural on it, it's speaking of languages, known languages, where someone would speak, maybe the the known, it was unknown to them, but it was known to the hearer, like we see in Acts chapter 2. But then there's language, uh, tongue, which is singular, and that referred to that ecstatic language that the speaker didn't know, and the hearer didn't know, and nobody knew, Okay. But here he's, I think he's talking about true languages because he would not promote anything but true languages. But he uses a singular here, and this is, this is what I want you to help understand because he's talking about a certain uh, person doing a certain act. So it goes back to singular, but it doesn't take away from our premise of understanding the plural and the singular. I hope you understand that. So now what's happening? In the midst of all of this, you have somebody standing up practicing a false tongue, right, and, or, or a real tongue. One is intelligible, one is unintelligible. And then lastly, you have the guy in the middle of the room who says, we have to have an interpreter. And he's trying to say, well, he says this, and, and she says this, and there's people singing, and there's a psalm, and there's preaching, and there's, there's instruction, and all this is going on, and it is crazy. And I'll tell you, I've been in a few places where they asked me to preach, and I've seen some of this. And I said, Lord, what do I do? <laughs> How do you preach over the top of this? This is out of control. 
And this is what's going on in this church. And doubt, doubtlessly, I mean, you even think about this interpretation because the next one is one who interprets, right? Here's this guy. Maybe he's got a good right mind. We need to have interprets here, but no one can hear him. And maybe someone's debating him on whether his interpretation is correct. Chaos is in full-on mode, isn't it? And this is all done in a public worship service. No wonder in verse 23, Paul says that if an unbeliever comes in, he's going to think you're what? Mad, crazy. This is insane. <laughs> no order to this. Now, this all leads up to this final statement in verse 26. Look at this. Let all things be done for edification. In other words, the only way to get the chaos and confusion is what Paul's saying here, is to get back under the control of the Spirit, the true Spirit of God, which would examine, would cause you to examine what you're doing and ask, make you ask the question, am, am I engaged in, in edifying ministry? And there's no way after they read this that they thought about their service and it's just lost completely control and they say that was edifying. And Paul's trying to drive them to their conclusion. And it's clear that edification was not even on their radar. But edification is our goal. That's the goal. That's the goal of the church. We are to edify. We are to speak the truth and love and care for one another and make sure that all that we do, whether it's how you just greet somebody when you come in, was, were you edifying? Did you take time to say something back to the greeter that held the door for you? I mean, think about a million ways that you can come in. You may not have this calling, but you have a calling to be edified. And this is where they were failing greatly. And so look, there's nothing wrong with coming to hear God's word. All of us need to be fed. You may have a heavy soul and you don't feel like edifying. Your soul is heavy. Maybe you're in desperate need of fellowship with one another. You've, you've been lonely this week. There's nothing wrong with coming and looking for fellowship. Maybe you have needs with children or your marriage. Um, maybe you have a hurt in your life. Um, that's understandable, right? We all have that. But if the goal of the church is to edify, you still have to put that in. You still have to go, am I going to be a blessing when I come to that building in some way to someone? Right? Because if not, here's what happens. Churches set their churches up just to minister to people and try to meet every need, and they fail. We are not here trying to meet every need. We are not God. We're trying to do some things very good. Worship, preaching, fellowship, breaking a bread together. There's, these are the things that we see that we do, and we believe God will edify you, but are you part of that? This is what God is asking us to do. We may not have the chaos that Corinth had, um, but the same problem can arise when churches just come in and get self-centered. Self-centered people soaking up self-centered time. That's not what God wants. Second thought this morning, and I really got to move. The beauty of silence versus the confusion of unintelligible speech. Now, here we go. Um, he's going back to this. Now, Paul, he's going to give the answer um, to bring back order, right? In structure to the worship. That's what he's trying to get back. And so Paul first deals with the gift of languages. Singular because it was one man speaking a language, right there. And the tongue gift uh, seems to be the most problem, right? So he's going to come now and, and deal with this first. But it is interesting. Every time he's listed the gifts, have you seen it? Fourth time he's done it in this passage, he's list, listed tongues last. So he's, and yet he's now dealing with it first because it's been a problem in this church. Look at verse 27 with me. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three, each in turn and one must interpret. Now, Paul would never promote um, an unknown, ecstatic, uh, unknowable, unintelligible language. He would never do that. You can tell, right? You can read this and go, he's not a part of that. And, and, and anybody who's caught up in that and I've ever argued with, I bring them to this and they go, well, yeah, but, you know, God can still do great. Yes, he can. The Bible says be quiet and just listen to God. But so he, you know, this is a problem, right? It's a problem within this church. And he's speaking about it. And so the Spirit of God would never authorize anyone to minister in a loss of self-control. Right? Fruit of the Spirit, right? There's a lot of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, all those other things. But what's the last one? Self-control. He never has somebody lose control that is not of God, right? 
you know, and they're sitting, you know, three fingers and their arms crossed and some kind of gibberish comes out of them. That is not from God. You will never prove it. It's never in the scriptures. In fact, we never see this again in the scriptures because the church outgrows this. This is the only place it's ever mentioned. He leaves this and he talks about great instruction and edification and building of leadership and all those. Because he's exposing that this was not what God was doing. So Paul has not only shown the false gift, but he would only promote the true gift. So he says, if there's a tongue, right? Verse 27, if somebody speaks in a tongue, so he's promoting the true gift, right? And then notice that there's a limit to those who are speaking in this gift of languages. There's two, three at the most. You go, why is that important? Well, for the same reason. You feel a bunch of people who are speaking in a known language and say we got Arabic and Spanish and, and uh, Tagalog and, and a bunch of other things going. Everybody goes, I, I have no idea what they're saying. I don't know any of those languages, right? And there's an order to it, right? You see order. And this was to prevent this particular gift from dominating. Paul knew it was dominating. And so he says, listen, this has to be known languages. This can only be two, three at the most. I don't want this to dominate your service. There was not to be competition between speakers. Notice a little phrase, in turn. This is a beautiful phrase. It means one after another. It applies to order and practice. So God's glory will be seen and saints will be edified. I remember one time, I, I might have shared this illustration before, many, many years ago when I was cowboy and um, I, people would find out about me and I'd get called to go preach at different places and I got asked to do the National Association of Christian Rodeo uh, week-long conference and a real good friend of mine sat on the board and he says, Scott, now I just need to warn you that I'm trying to bring them back to the Bible and so you may see some things that are pretty scary. He did not warn me enough. <laughs> we're at a, we're at a camp, uh, 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 conference ground, kind of a, a fairground way up in Idaho, and I'm late, I fly in, I come in, there's this huge stadium full of people, and the smoke machines are going, and this guy was doing Chuck Berry with a pink guitar across the uh, stage, and everybody is praying and speaking in tongues. And I go, Tim, I'm going to kill you if they don't kill me first. He goes, Scott, I know, just preach the word, they need the word, they need the word. And I go, okay. And so, uh, as I started, started out as I normally do, I opened my Bible, and, and I prayed. I couldn't hear myself pray because they believe when somebody prays, everybody prays. You've, ever, you've seen this? Have you seen this? And it's, and it's crazy. And I'm trying to think my own thoughts, and there's people praying, there's people on the stage praying. I was just like, wow, this is not very edifying. I thought I had a really good prayer to go to God with that might encourage somebody as we look into the Word, but it never got heard. So he says, in turn here, right? So Paul's bringing balance between tongues and this prayer language that, he just met, that we just dealt with last week into to using the gift properly. Even though this is apostolic time, there was gifts that were extraordinary, but they had to be done right. They were not to be like the pagan temples. And see, the world always creeps into the church. We're supposed to be taking stuff out to them, but what happens is the doors turn in, not out, right? And pretty soon the church starts reflecting the world. Exactly what's happening today, isn't it, brothers and sisters? The churches are caving on marriage, on gender, all of that stuff because, oh, well, you know, we have to be love, right? And you know me, I, I love preaching love, but love preaches the truth. It does it kindly, but our doors open out. Let's make sure we know that, right? And so this was what was happening in this. Notice the Bible says here also that one must interpret. Well, imagine that. What if I just sent George up today and said, George, just go speak to me your name and tongue. They'll figure it out. Well, three people in here did. That's it. Maybe four. Because you don't know Arabic. This is, this is just it's somewhat elementary, isn't it? One must interpret. The, the one must is emphatic there, right? One interpreter, that's all. You have two or three that speak in these tongues, but you have one interpreter. That's it, so that people can understand, so the interpreters aren't arguing over things. That man must know the truth, or that woman, whoever's interpreting, whatever it may be, he must know the truth. You can't have multiple interpreters. So Paul says, I believe, I believe that I am trying to help you recognize what is right in this congregation understanding if there's someone in this congregation that has a foreign dialect, you are to provide for them so they can hear it, so that they can be edified. If there's no interpreter, be quiet 
Isn't that what the verse says? I know, I know it's a little rough translation by the old cowboy here, but that's what it says. I was going to use shut up, but then we had to give quarters in our house when we said that, so I know Gina hit me up for a quarter afterwards, so I didn't say shut up. So, if you don't have an interpret, be quiet. Right? That's what he's telling them. The verse is very simple. Right? If George comes up without me sitting there, someone should say, George, be quiet. We don't know what you're talking about. But I came up with him, and you heard it, and it was cold, because we go, ah, wow, look at that, God's word in another language. And now we know what it says. Look at verse 28 with me. But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and God. Now, Paul is saying if there's neither the speaker nor the one in attendance can interpret, there is only one option, he's to be silenced. And the, there is a beauty in silence. It is greater than confusion right? Because at least you can just say, I'm just going to pray and I'm just going to talk to God. That's beautiful versus trying to do something, have no understanding of it, and just bring chaos and confusion to the group. So God's instructions were for them to refrain from using this gift because it was unloving, it was unedifying to practice it without an interpreter. Now, notice it says, let him speak to himself and to God. And I just mentioned this, but basically he says, let him meditate. Let him meditate. Um, I've been in places where I didn't have an interpreter maybe sitting next to me when I was getting ready to preach, and I didn't know what they were saying. I didn't know what was going on. So guess what I did? I just prayed. I just talked to the Lord. I talked to him about the message he laid on my heart and asked him to make it clear, and he would help me work with my translator so we could be clear and edifying. So that's what I did. I couldn't understand. So I just, it was just me and God, right? And see, that's putting the needs of the congregation before your own personal desires. And Paul had been devoted throughout this section to show the fruitlessness of unbridled tongues without interpretation. And we've seen that. Third thought, the character and peace of God and the orderly procedures of the church. The character and the peace of God and the orderly procedures of the church. Now we come to the practice of prophesying. Now, this is important. Paul, you know, as we've been going through this verse by verse, Paul's put a lot of emphasis on prophesying versus tongues, right? He says tongues is unedifying, prophecy is edifying, right? He's made that clear. But it's important to know that even though this was a legitimate gift, it can fall under abuse in the church, and it did. And so we find order and structure given to the gift of prophecy in this text to stop the chaos and confusion in this worship service. And it seems that everybody had some kind of word from God when you study this, some kind of revelation, and they felt it necessary that everybody hear them, right? So there's no structure, there's no order, it's just chaos. Look at verse 29 with me. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. Well, here we have the same principle that was given with the tongues, never more than three, right? And who's ever standing up, should have the right to proclaim the promises of God. Remember, prophecy is proclaiming either old promises, promises that were in the Old Testament, or new revelation, but it was all promises and hope in God that he was going to do what he said he did, right? So that person must have an opportunity to do those things. Now, he says, look, one is great, two is good, three is okay, sit down, the rest of you. That's what he's saying. And, and, and there's order here, right? And you can see it in our service, right? The way we did things. Um, today, and use it's one of our other elders, but today um, was Pastor Michael. Pastor Michael comes. He, he shares his, uh, what, what God put on his heart, and he calls us to worship through psalms. And, and then we sing some songs, and, and then somebody comes up and they read scriptures, right? In an orderly, fashionable way that you could understand it, and you could read it, and you could hear it. And, and then somebody comes up, opens the Bible, preaches the Word of God. How many people were that, really? There's three, maybe, four, maybe. I mean, there's an order to it, right? And you can see that he was trying to bring simplicity of order back to this. In, in the congregation, your role, if you're in the congregation, you're one who should be listening and allowing yourself to be encouraged, allowing to, to let the promises of God sink in and be polite, right? It would be very impolite if you stood up during the Michael's um, encouraging call to worship and started telling about your own experience, right? It would be impolite. We'd all go like, you know, hey, sit down. <laughs> so, so there's order here. Now, another obvious reason for the problems in Corinth um, that, and many problems have been listed, is that they really did not have 
a leadership structure of any kind that we see. We see prophets. And it was one of the problems that arises from here. And I think it's clear in the scriptures that we can see what Paul does from here on out. How he develops leadership as they go on. Paul and the other apostles, they start to establish elders. James is a very early written book. And he says in James chapter 5, verse 14, if anyone is sick, call the elders. Now, they probably were in Antioch and in Jerusalem where the main elders over the church were. And Paul and Barnabas were sent out from there. But that did not remain very long. When Paul sends Titus to Crete, chapter 1, verse 5, he says, Titus, establish, appoint elders in every city. In fact, he uses this word, set in order what, is, what needs to be done and establish elders in every city. The word set in order means, uh, it's the same word for a broken bone. We get a, a medical term from that. Um, it's broken, set in order, right? So there's, they're, they're in need of leadership. When he writes to the Philippian church in Philippi, he says in chapter 1, verse 1, Paul and Timothy, the bondservant of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including overseers and deacons. Things are changing. Corinth was part of the problem that helped them learn. They did not have a leadership structure within that church to help keep order and proper worship. You drop all the way down to Peter's ministry. Peter, uh, 1 Peter 5, 1 says, Therefore I exhort the elders among you. The churches were now scattered, right? Peter starts out to the, to the churches scattered. And he gives a list of places and, and regions that the church has been pushed because of persecution. And he's now speaking to the elders, plural, in all of those different places. So it's developing there. Paul sends Timothy back to Ephesus to, create, uh, to help correct a difficult problem. One of them was eldership. So chapter 3 of 1 Timothy is all about what a real elder is, what his calling, what his following is, what his qualifications are to help straighten that out because he knew the church would have problems. And then he tells Timothy in chapter 5, verse 1, he says, the elders who rule well are to be considered of double honor, especially, this is really key, especially those who work hard in preaching and teaching. No mention of tongues, prophecy, and all the other stuff. Isn't that interesting? Why doesn't he add those things? They were phasing out. And we see that over and over as he gives instruction to churches. We never see this type of language used again within the New Testament. So this was a missing problem. And Corinth suffered from this lack of biblical leadership. And they lost their way. And by this time, it seems that the church in Corinth only had prophets. That's the only way we see it here. They have prophets. And notice at the end of verse 29, they were still, though, these prophets, look, they were still to make clear judgment. And I think what the Bible's saying is even in this time where they didn't have a leadership structure, they were to ask God for the gift of discernment. Discern what is of God and what is not. And I think you see that in the rest of this text. Look at verse 30. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. For verse 31, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. So when one prophet had a revelation from God and he began to speak in order, in an orderly way, the others were to be quiet. But when another prophet received a fresh revelation, remember this is pre-scriptures, right? That one should sit down, not monopolize the whole time, and the other one was to come up. And I know this is this prophecy talk because it's not part of our world anymore, our church anymore because of the completion of the scriptures, but it was a beautiful thing. And they took a beautiful thing and made it ugly. God was revolutionarily speaking through people until the scriptures were complete. And so they were to do this in order. One speak, the other one sit down. Don't monopolize the entire proclamation. Allow the next person to come. They may have a message from a psalm. They may have something new. They may be learning from the Apostle Paul's writings and they want to share what they had learned about the promises of God. Notice in verse 31, um, one by one, get in line, be orderly so that everyone is edified. It's like he's talking to kindergartners. And as I was writing this sermon, I get up and walk every once in a while on the halls. And I'm walking, I'm thinking, man, it's like they're kindergartners. And then I walk by Miss Amy's class uh, in the kindergartens, and they're all lined up against the wall. Quiet. <laughs> and she, and I don't know if she did this, some, I don't, maybe it wasn't Miss Amy. Somebody says, say hi to Pastor Scott. Hi, Pastor Scott. All in unison, you know. <laughs> I take that back. They're not acting like kindergartners, at least Riverbend kindergartners. <laughs> 
They're acting like something else. A bunch of out of control people. And it's pretty amazing that he has to say, hey, just wait in line. That's pretty bad when you got to the point where the Apostle Paul has to say, you guys can't even stand in line, let alone get theology right. An amazing thing. But God was doing amazing things. That the leadership structure there would start to fade away. And so Paul tells us in Ephesians 4, 11 and following, he says he gave some apostles. That was the Paul and Peter and James and John and all those. And then some prophets. That's what we see in the book of 1 Corinthians. And then some evangelists. Now they're sticking, right? Now we're getting to uh, something that's going to stay around because we see Paul tell Timothy do the work of an evangelist. And then some are pastors and some are teachers. And he goes on to say this is all for the equipping, the building up of the body of Christ. And so that leadership starts to go forward. So listen, today, if you stand up in the middle of my sermon and shout that you have some kind of revelation from God, most likely some very kind men with little curly cues coming out of their ear are going to come lead you out. I hope in a kind way, because that's not orderly, right? And it happens every once in a while, but somebody comes in and they're upset with the preacher or whatever, and they want to shout out. And so we have guys positioned around here to make sure there's order and everybody's safe, right? See, see, God has brought order to his church. And one of the things I've learned from 1 Corinthians is Paul was learning. God was leading Paul to say, that's not what I have for the New Testament church. And pretty soon, prophets and apostles are replaced with, with evangelists and pastors and teachers, and there becomes order. And now the gospel can be clearer, right? And the message can go, and the church can grow. What an important aspect of that. Look at verse 32 with me. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Well, even before the completion of the canon, there was, there was structure. The prophets were sum, to be submitting to one another with the goal of glorifying God and, uh, and edifying the church. And that's never changed. That remains the purpose. So the point here is the true gift functions under control. And the prophets were to know what was edifying and what wasn't. Look at the verse uh, 33 here. For God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace, Period. And I think that's where the verse breaks here. I think this is an amazing sum, summation of the entire chapter. So our worship service in every respect should be a reflection of the character of God. I think this is pointing out the character of God. Look at that phrase with me. God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. What is to be on display in our worship services is God is a God of peace. We should see the character of God when we worship. In, in many aspects of his character, but one he points out here is peace. This was missing. There was no peace. There was people standing and shouting and singing, and everybody had a word from God, and there was no peace. But he is a God, not of confusion. Isn't that wonderful? Yes. Isn't that beautiful? I have no confusion in my mind what God's plan is. His plan was to save people from a wretched fallen world and he laid it down before the foundations of the world he sent his son to add flesh to his divine deity walk perfectly on this earth to die for my sins beat death be raised from the dead and be exalted to the right hand and him being the only way the truth and the life to him there's no other way it's pretty clear isn't it that's a gospel but what happens when we get into all of these other things that everybody wants to get into, that message gets lost. And people think, well, oh, Jesus is pretty cool. Right now, there's a lot of humanizing of Jesus going on. You've seen some Super Bowl commercials and different things happening. Yeah, praise the Lord. He's came fully man. He represents me. I can't thank the Lord enough for that. But he is God. And our churches and our services should reflect that. We should work hard to see him as God and head of the church, not some chaotic barking in the spirit and laughing and unorganized chaos and mocking God without a control we've seen happen, such as the Toronto Blessing and other things. The Corinth church was in a state that this was, was not there. They were desiring to exalt themselves. And yet, Corinth church in this passage don't in churches today, don't read this as a rebuke. They actually look at verse 26 and says, oh, that's what we should be doing. Everybody should have a word from God. Everybody should be doing this. 
And because of that, so many people have been confused of God. And I think unbelievers, we never want them to come into our church and say, these people are crazy. Um, they, they can't even speak to us. Their God must be some kind of God of confusion. We never want that. We want them to come away and say, I want to know their God. I want the peace that passes all understanding that their God gives. I want that. I want to see it. Uh, and I, I think as elders, this is one of the things we want to see. We want to see that in our music. We want to see that in our giving. We want to see that in our fellowship. We want to see that in our love for one another. All of this through the preaching of God's word. That is our goal. Four, women magnify the glory of Christ or attempt to subvert him. I think I've got to quit. Ah, that darn clock. Can I blame you, Michael? Yes. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, it was worth it. I really wanted to get through 14 because I can't wait to get into 15. But I think I'll stop here because the next two points are very important. And, and, and let me just preface this before the worship team comes in. We're going to sing one more song and we're going to sing it orderly and properly with a lot of joy. And then we're going to close and we're going to fellowship. And we, some of us may go break bread with each other after this and, and, and talk about what we learned. All that, all, I think all that's going to happen in a good church. But let me tell you, we're going to come back and we're going to look at some harder things, right? He's going to look at the role of women, what happened. And this is not, this is not against women. I want to preface this so you're not mad at me and don't show up next week. This is actually really, really good. We're going to learn biblical roles and how that glorifies God, right? And then he's going to bring it all together and wrap it up. And there's enough there. I, I've had to push through these last points anyway. Um, and I'm looking, I'm looking forward to developing this next week. So please come back, okay? Uh, we'll look at this together. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time and the word together. Our hearts are knitted together when we see truth unveiled from the pages of the scriptures. We long to be a church and desire to be a church. And we're working at being a church that seeks to edify seeks to build up, seeks to constantly proclaim the promises of God. We seek to encourage one another. Those who are hurting, those who are weak, they need it. But those maybe who are strong still need to be encouraged, Lord. And so may we be a church that is always edifying. Not for our own personal sake, our personal exaltation, but for the sake of those and for the glory of God. And so, Lord, I pray that even as we close today and we sing a song together and, and, and then we dismiss after a benediction that we would be encouraging to one another. There's a temptation to run out and leave and beat the traffic. <laughs> oh, Lord, help us at least on the way out to encourage somebody mm -hmm. for your glory and for your good and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.